You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. I'm here in the studio of Gangland Wire. I have on a Zoom call David Bowman. David Bowman is familiar with our friend Frank Coulotte. As a matter of fact, David Bowman is one of the reasons that Frank Coulotte ended up in the Witness Protection Program because without people like David Bowman, he might have kept on banging it out out there in Las Vegas. And he wrote a book called Bringing Down Culotta, the story Casino Couldn't Tell You. So welcome, David. Glad to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Gary. I'm glad to be here. So I've just been seeing you lighten up on Facebook and all the social media platforms here recently, but I hadn't heard your name before. And, you know, David, I did a whole show on the the Hole in the Wall gang, but I missed a big part of it. And I was happy with myself that I was able to talk to Ernie DeVino back in New Jersey, who subsequently has died, by the way. I never did get a chance to get him on the podcast, but he was an interesting character. Who was the guy you said that died? Uh, Ernie DeVino. Yeah, you spoke to Ernie, but did Ernie just pass away? He just passed away sometime within the last couple of years, I'd say about a year ago. I'll be damned. I didn't know that. Yeah, I talked to Frank a little bit about it, and I think he was still alive back in 2019. Yeah, he would have been. He and Frank, they didn't exactly see eye to eye. They had different opinions about who actually started the hole in the wall. Oh, yeah. (laughs) uh, When you read my book, you'll definitely understand Ernie was basically my contact or the closest person I dealt with in the whole in the wall game. And he was a pretty important person since he was pretty much in on all the burglaries. He was the core of the whole in the wall game, him and Leo. Yeah, Leo Garino. Yeah, they were really good, solid professional criminals that worked together and kind of think as a team before this hole in the wall gang thing came along from what Ernie told me. Oh, absolutely. They, and that's why I said Ernie was very good about giving us all the information. Myself and Jerry Costanza and Joe Tassoni. We kind of had a little subdivision of the hole in the wall gang. And they asked me if I wanted to, about a week after I got into town, if I wanted to work with them. Jerry passed that on to me that Ernie had asked him to ask me. And I said, no flattered, but that's not really my bag. I work with him and give him some information, but I didn't want to be part of the crew or work with him. Interesting. Now, let's go back to a little bit about your childhood. Where'd you come from? I see that you're from Pueblo, Colorado originally, and you ended up in Las Vegas. Now, how'd you end up in Las Vegas, David? Well, my father was basically forced into retirement. He worked at Colorado Fuel and Iron or CF&I steel plant in Pueblo, Colorado. And after that, after 32 years, I had gotten really sick when I was in the eighth grade and and I almost died. And, you know, I kind of missed about a year's worth of school. So, but I was always very smart in school. I was top of my class. I don't know, after I got sick, I kind of lost interest in school. I saw life in a different way. It was just a combination of things. We decided to move out to Las Vegas and that's how it started. I moved out there in 77. I drove out my own new 77 Olds Cutlass Supreme. Is what <laughs> wow. I had a 76 Olds Cutlass Supreme. Well, I'll be damned. Yeah. Well, that was 77 was the last year they made them full size. Yeah. Because if you remember then, all the Japanese cars came in and it was the fuel shortage yes. and everything was downsized. And- <laughs> 
Yeah, and I drove out with my older brother, Larry. And then my mom and dad drove out in their car. And this was October of 1977. David, you don't really strike me as a kind of guy that will become involved with professional criminals. Tell me a little bit about your uh, criminal history, because you weren't always working with the FBI. That's really the thing. I was 16, 17 years old. I was born in 1961. So I went out there. I was an exceptional 16, 17, 18-year-old. So once I got out there, my parents, my mother especially, kind of culture shock to them. And so they left. My dad left me out there with my older brother because he knew I was mature and could handle myself and wasn't dumb. And you know, he wanted me to start working and everything. But once they left, I kind of got involved with some people in my apartment complex that we were living in. And I was living over on East Harmon Avenue, kind of by the university. And it looks completely different now. I think there's high rises and stuff there now. But when I got out there and I met these guys, we started selling cocaine. And by the time I met the Hole in the Wall gang and Frank Collada, I had already well established myself in Las Vegas as a pretty good big coke dealer and so that's how i made my stripes in the street interesting so those guys from talking to ernie especially and frank too but they used to like to find guys like you and rip you off that was uh, robbing drug dealers was one of their things so how did you ended up ripping off frank now did they have their sights set on you no, me and my friend Joe Tassoni came into town back into Las Vegas in June, like the first week of June of 1980. And Gene Smith had just killed Frankie Bluestein. And a few months before that, in I believe March, Nikki Costanza Jr. was found in the trunk of his car, shot in the head, which was my friend and Jerry Costanza and Frank's wife, Elaine Costanza's younger brother. That was a big deal. And so was Gene Smith killing Frankie Blues. David, 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 let me interrupt you just a minute. You know, for the folks that don't know Gene Smith killing Frankie Bluestein, that was a big deal. And if you saw the movie Casino, they reenacted that where the cops were following a member of the Palatro's crew or they thought it was. And the guy got out and he had a, something shiny in his hand and the copper shot him and killed him in the movie. They said it was a sandwich. Now, in real life, that Gene Smith was a member of the Metro intelligence unit and they were following Costanza and, and several of the members of the Hole in the Wall gang, uh, Colada and anybody else that showed up and they saw this guy show up with Illinois tags, wanted to follow him away and see who he was. He thought they were trying to rob him and he did have a gun, best I can tell. Kent Clifford told me that they, yeah. they traced that gun back to this guy's brother. Now, a lot of people argue with you about that, but he killed this Frankie Bluestein. So carry on with how you then ended up hooking up with Galata. Yeah. And so we got in that night and they pretty well put me and Joe, not actually physically, but they kind of surrounded us and really hammered us and questioned us about both Nikki. I mean, nothing to do about Bluestein, but they were all really hot and talking about Gene Smith. That's how they put it. He murdered Bluestein, the hero sandwich and that whole story that they portrayed in Casino, which is not true. And I can get into that later, but so anyway, they wanted to know what we knew about who Nikki Jr. was associating with time or if we knew anything. They really kind of cornered us that night and just were pumping us for information. They wanted to know what we knew about Nikki Jr. and who he was running with and if we heard anything or knew anything. 
they basically just wanted to find out who killed Nick. Frank knew, but he was playing games at the time with Nick and Jerry and, and them because they knew that would be a problem if he was to tell them. So, But anyway, it wasn't long after that. That was one intense night, though. That was one of the most intense situations I'd been in because, like I said, if I would have given the wrong answers or they didn't like the look in my eye, I would have gotten a beaten or taken to the desert for the big ride. So, But that's how things began. That's how I got juiced in. As young as I was, I was 19 years old in June of 1980. My friend Joe Tassoni was like mid-20s. Jerry Costanza was like mid-30s. So I was kind of the young guy that they were grooming. And like I said, I established myself on the street as a pretty good coke dealer. And back in those days, that was a big deal because everybody was doing cocaine. In fact, that's probably, if you want to get right down to it, was the root of why the whole thing crumbled up. Interesting. Now, I've got you here. I want to ask you a question about that cocaine business. How's a guy like you get a decent connection? I mean, you weren't connected directly to Colombians, I don't imagine. But how did you, I mean, were you like a user and then your dealer and you start selling little bits? How do you get that connection? Yeah, that's how it started. Like I said uh, earlier, I met some a couple of guys. Funny enough, one of them was named Larry Newman. Ah. It wasn't Lurch Larry Newman. I, I talk about this in my book. He was from Columbus, Georgia, and his roommate was a guy from Waterville, Maine. So, and they were both college age guys. And that's kind of how everybody met in Las Vegas. You lived in an apartment or a condo, you go down to the pool, and everybody's hanging out in the jacuzzi and the swimming pool, laying in the sun. And you end up going over to somebody's place. And that's kind of how it began. They were, those guys had established a connection out there and a pretty good one. And then my brother ended up leaving to go back to Colorado, probably what was June of 78. And so from then on, Larry Newman moved in to my place and then him and I kind of partnered up and started business. And that's kind of how it began. And we did lose plugs or connections. It really is kind of an underground society is really what it is. The drug world. You got the meth people. You got the coke people. You got the hill people. It really is. And it's an underground community. That's kind of how it works. And that's how you meet people. You know, yeah. you see big people, middle people, and through drugs a lot of the time. So, David, you become an associate of Frank Culotta and his hole-in-the-wall gang. But somehow you end up becoming associated with the Metro Intelligence Unit and Kent Clifford, who led it. And by the way, folks, uh, Kent Clifford is in my movie Gangland Wire. I was able to interview him. He was one interesting guy, as David will attest to. I never met Gene Smith, but uh, those guys were, they were gung-ho. They were less kick-ass and take names with the mob out there, uh, more so than usual with intelligence guys. You know, I worked the intelligence unit, and we mainly just followed people and took their picture and, and got on roofs and behind windows and watched them and tried to find informants mm-hmm. and, like yourself, David, and we didn't really go out and follow people and stop them and end up in any gunplay. Nobody ever even came close once, but I thought they were going to shoot me and I was just going to get out of there. But anyhow, yeah. uh, so how did you end up getting hooked up with them? Did they get a case on you or something? No, they sure didn't. I came to them on my own. And that's one of the things I like to make very clear to people. When I was involved with the hole in the wall game, guys, I played straight up. I wasn't informing on them, had no intention of informing on them. 
how it all happened was I had given, well, it was actually Ernie, the score. I participated in the score of a Cuban drug dealer that I gave, I tossed to him. They went over and burglarized. What happened was Frank lied to me and Jerry about how much they got. It was a big lie because they got quite a bit. And we found that out through Ernie. <laughs> and so Jerry came over to my place and we were free bass and coke. And he kind of got psyched up and was saying, hey, Dave, Frank thinks we're a couple of punks, I guess. He thinks he can rip us off. And he's like, it's your score. I know where the shit's at. He says, we can go and you want to go get it. Let's go get it. And I said, let's do it. <laughs> and so we drove over to the house where the stuff was stashed. And I talk about this in my book. This was the one of three big events that I was directly involved in that caused Frank Collada to flip and become a government witness. This was number one. And this was a big deal amongst the family, as you could say at the time, because I was part of that, that inner sanctum, believe it or not, I was. And so after, and I cut my arm going in and bled all over the place. And that was the problem. If I hadn't cut my arm, everything would have went down differently after that. But because of that cut, they would have searched me. They would have wanted to look at me. Yeah. And there was no way to conceal that cut. So we had to come up with a bullshit story. That's all detail, all that in my book. If you read it, it's a pretty wild ride after that. Anyway, months later, you asked me how I got involved with Gene Smith. When I came forward in October of 1980, the police, the FBI, Metro Intelligence had nothing on Frank Collada and the Hole in the Wall gang. Like you were saying earlier, they drove around, took pictures of us sitting out front and our license plates on our cars and all that. And then they do background and everything. But bottom line was they had no cases. They had nothing. When I called up, I said, today's your lucky day because I gave them the information on the stolen furniture, which ended up sinking Frank. A lot of the publicity and a lot of the drama went to the big versus thing with Sal Romano. But that's how the FBI spun the whole thing when they burned me and kind of erased me from the record. That left a pretty big hole that they had to fill up with something. And so they filled it up with what they filled it up with. Yeah, I remember reading that he had a uh, bunch of stolen furniture in his apartment or something. And it was a house that he just moved into on Algonquin. Okay, and he caught a case for that. So that was pending during this time. And that's when they were planning the hole-in-the-wall caper, uh, the way I remembered. I, I may have my timing a little bit off there. Is that? Well, yeah, I can give you the exact timelines. He got arrested in late November of 1980. That was the first blood that was drawn, and that was because of me. And I worked directly with Gene Smith. That's who I worked with. And again, he told me all about That was one of the first conversations we had. You'll read about it in my book where I met him on Halloween night in his white Pontiac Bonneville. He picked me up by the Denny's and we drove around and I'll, it, it was a meeting that I'll never forget till the day I die because a lot was said in that drive that we took. And that was the beginning of the end for Frank Collada and the hole in the wall gang and the Chicago outfit in Las Vegas. It really truly was. For you guys, for you listeners out there, I've been on that other side of that conversation. And it's, uh, you're asking, as an officer, you're asking a man like David here to risk everything 
to help you out. And especially if you bend him and twist him and you got something on him, that's one thing. But when you don't have anything and you're trying to, you start liking him, you say, I'll start liking you. And then I don't want to put you in a situation where you're going to get killed. But yet I want to make this case. I want to take down Frank Collada because he's been a thorn in my side for quite a while. And, and I know through him, I get to Tony Spilatro, who was the ultimate goal here for those guys. That's an interesting conversation because I've got to make you like me. I've got to try to figure out how to protect you. Then I start liking you as we start talking. And it's a little dance that you both do and you end up forming a relationship for want of a better term. And so that's an interesting conversation that you guys had. And I've been there. So I applaud you for coming over. Let me interject something here about Gene Smith. When I met him, in on Halloween night for the first time when we met each other. Remember that he had killed Frankie Bluestein in June of nineteen eighty. They had put a hit out on him. Steve Bluestein, the dad of Frankie Bluestein, was a big guy in the Teamster. And a green light out on Gene Smith. And I'm sure Clifford told you how he went back to Chicago and knocked on all the boss's doors and told them that if anything happens to my lieutenant, if you kill him, I'm going to come back here and kill 10 of yours. That did happen. When I met Gene Smith that night, you want to talk about two guys that were very nervous because my biggest concern and my biggest decision going forward to law enforcement was should I go to the feds or should I go to the locals? Well, I didn't trust the feds, okay? If you read my book, you'll find out why in the end. But I also knew that Metro had been dirty with Joe Blasco, okay? So there was one cop that I knew that they hated. And so he must have been straight. <laughs> and that was Gene Smith because he shot Bluestein. So that gave me comfort because, believe me, at that time in Las Vegas, if I would have came forward with the wrong person, yeah, that would have been fatal. Oh, yeah. I remember at that point in time, see, we were a member of what we called the Law Enforcement Intelligence Units as a national organization of intelligence units all across the United States, and Las Vegas had been kicked out because of dirty cops in their unit, and Joan Blasco was in that unit, and he had a, there was another yeah. sergeant out there that caught a case. Well, when, when Kent Clifford took over that unit, they got the new sheriff in. What was his name? McCarthy? McCarthy. Yeah, got, got the new sheriff in, and he cleaned that out, and Kent Clifford has a heck of a story about cleaning it out. Said he walked into the unit, and everybody's wearing these high-dollar leather coats and jewelry, and the half the unit is at Christmas time, and it's filled with cases of liquor. And he said, where'd this come from? They said, well, it came from the strip. We always get this. And he said, you know, he said, guys, remove that. And he said, I never want to see anything like that again. You're not to take anything from anybody. And then he started weeding them out, the Joe Blasco's. And, yeah. and he cleaned that unit up just about that time. So you were right at the forming of the new. And, and they admitted them back into what we call LEIU. And they've been back in ever mm-hmm. since. Now, the sheriff's department always thought it was a little bit dicey out there. They had some people. Actually, this was just before Kent Clifford that they used to investigate do background investigations for casino owners when it was actually just the sheriff's department before it was Metro, Mm -hmm. which was sheriff and local when they blended. And I met one of those guys. He came back to Kansas City and was doing some background. He was dicey, man. I can tell you he was dicey as hell. I I didn't know what the deal was. Mm -hmm. So my next question, I think, is we're getting up here about 30 minutes. Do you remember when they put Sal Romano in with that crew 
And Ernie DeVino told me a couple of stories. Ernie DeVino told me that Saul Romano, that Tony Spilatro wanted him in for some reason. I think he was an alarm guy and, and a pretty decent thief. Frank Collada claims that he was warned by some Chicago coppers that Romano was dirty. But Ernie tells me that Romano had an apartment that he said it just looked like it was a set. And it looked like that he had a girlfriend that they said was airline attendant. So that's why she wasn't hardly ever around. Now, to me, that says the FBI set him up in an apartment that they wired up and gave him a lady FBI agent to act like she was a girlfriend and be around him. Did that happen like that? Or am I reading too much into that? Well, can't honestly say. I can speak for what I did with Metro Intelligence. And they had a an undercover apartment at Park Terrace, was the complex. I know because I was in that apartment several times when we did the controlled drug buys on Costanza. Hmm. That's where they would strip search me before the controlled buy yeah, yeah. to do it properly and to wire me up. And that's where that was done. And then I would go out with Detective Cordell Pearson, was who I did the controlled drug buys on. But getting back to Romano, and I'll get, and you'll read about this in my book. I had done the major damage and given Metro big time intel on the hole in the wall gang and, and actually jobs that they had done that I participated in. But that's why Metro ended up bringing me to Dennis Arnoldy and Joe Gursky and Don Campbell was to debrief me and to take statements. And then they were going to use us initially to make cases on the hole in the wall gang. But what happened was, in the process of doing that, they flipped Sal Romano, okay? But we had already gotten the ball rolling, and like I said, Frank had already gotten nailed on the possession of stolen property, which I was 100% responsible for, which is what he ended up doing time over, and that's what got him convicted April 24th of 1982. And then I'll get into some of that later. No, I didn't know Sal Romano. Other than what I've read about him, I didn't know him out on the street personally. But yeah, they probably did do that. I believe they flipped him sometime in the spring of 81, just a few months before the July 4th burglary. And I was doing my own thing with Metro. So let me say this. Even though they had formed the Organized Crime Task Force, they really didn't like each other. Okay. In fact, Gene Smith told me, I don't trust them mother effers. Yeah. And I said, well, that makes me feel good now that you're going to bring me to them. I said, you know, thanks. Appreciate your honesty. We really formed a hell of a relationship, him and I did, over this year and a half that went on after they popped Colada. David, I know the feeling. I had a gal once and I said, we got to go. I got to take you to the U.S. attorney and an FBI agent about what we've been talking about. And I said, I'm going to tell you, I don't trust them. And they've told me that U.S. attorney said, now he's never going to front you out in any manner. And it wasn't six months from then, he gets hold of me, said, you know, we got to have your gal down here at the grand jury. She's got to testify. I had to go tell her, sorry, but he says, you got to testify. I know I promised you, you wouldn't, but you got to, you know, she was mad. So that happens a lot. A local guy gets something going and then you get in with the U.S. attorney's office and Mm -hmm. they just throw you to the wolves in a New York second. So I appreciate your situation there. So go ahead. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry I interrupted you. No, no. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And like I said, we were like, as I like to tell people, he was like Bill Walsh and I was Joe Montana (laughs) because it was our championship season. We did what we set out to do because when I first met him, I told him that I believed the Collada would roll. 
And he looked at me like I was, you got to be out of your mind. I would have to agree with him. Yeah. He looked at me and I was kind of shocked. He looked at me and said, well, I don't know about that kid. He says, outfit guys are pretty hardcore. And I said, well, we'll see. But I was right in the end because after I got him on the furniture and he took the fall on Bertha's. But the real kill shot was when I put the five control drug buys on Jerry because he was got married to Elaine Costanza. That's what most people don't understand about the family inside thing and knowing the Costanzas as I did for years before I ever met Frank. I knew Elaine years before he did. And I knew the family influence on him would be big time if we put that kind of pressure on. And that would be the third major deal that I was involved in that pretty well caused him to flip. Interesting. So I have another question. I know a lot of people have. What about Tony Spilatro during that time? We're all interested in Tony Spilatro. He's kind of the big name here at your level. Was that name mentioned much or uh, what was your impression or what was kind of the word on the street about this Tony Spilatro and and the casinos and all that? Oh, I knew during that summer that I was with those guys. One of the days that were that I'll never forget that was very memorable was July the 3rd of 1980. We had just gotten back with them. And by that time, we were very comfortable with them and they were very comfortable with us. In fact, my buddy, Joe Tassoni, took over for Jerry as the chef at the Upper Crust. So that's how close we were to him. I was at the restaurant every day with those guys. I wasn't plotting burglaries with them because nobody was. You would take that stuff. There was a protocol that you went through. And if I had some information on, like I said, the Cuban drug dealer, I would go to Jerry and then Jerry would go to Ernie and then Ernie would go to Frank. And that's how things were done. There was a pecking order and a protocol that had to be followed. It was July the 3rd of 1980. And that's when the Leo Guardino found the FBI surveillance camera that they had planted in the roof above the office of the upper crust. Yeah, I heard and about Tony, that. I, I was sitting 10 feet from Tony Spilatro that night. The place was crawling with feds. Oscar Goodman was there. Tony was there. Frank was there. And that's why I was there, because it was like, hell, this was better than television. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, mean, I was just doing the whole thing. I was eating dinner, and Tony was sitting 10 feet from me. And Oscar, <laughs> and then I went home and turned on the television, and Oscar Goodman was on TV talking about how the police and FBI were using Gestapo tactics yeah. to harass his Italian American uh, business owner. <laughs> <laughs> I know the drill. <laughs> yeah. That's how it was back then. I mean, every day that year, 1980, and that summer especially. Every day that I woke up, you never knew what the day was going to bring. It was really something. It was like living in a movie every day. It truly was. Yeah, really. All right, David, I think we've probably pretty well done this. Folks, you got to remember, get out there and get that book, Bringing Down Culotta, the story Casino Couldn't Tell You. It's going to give you a lot of backstory that questions you have had, I'm sure I always had, about what was going on out there outside of what Nicholas Pileggi wrote in his book and what they portrayed in that movie, because there was a lot more going on, as you can tell. And it sounds like a good book. I have to admit, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Got it. I'm going to get it on Kindle. 
I think it's on my Kindle, if I remember right. I, when I first saw it come up, I thought, I want to read that one. Sounds really, really interesting. Yeah, I just really would like people to check out my book and buy it. And if you like casino, if you're into the Spalatro era in Vegas, if you're into FBI cover-ups and things like that, you're going to like my book. And you're going to know when you read it that it's the truth, because I think most people know the truth when they hear it and read it. So. I'm anxious to get reviews on it, and I'm really hoping to be the new face and voice of that era in Las Vegas now that Frank Collada has passed, because like I said, I was inside the police world and I was inside the the hole-in-the-wall gang world, so I know from both sides. Yeah, you're kind of the last man standing. Like I told you, Ernie DeVino died. Frank's dead. Right, And, and the reason is because I was so young. Yeah. While I was involved with them, which is a good thing now, so I can carry on the story and and add to it as well. And Ken Clifford died. I think he had ALS or something. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Gene Smith's never talked to anybody that I know of. I don't know if he's still alive or not. Well, and there's one gentleman that, that I mentioned in the book who is still very much alive. And he's practicing law and is a very prominent personal injury attorney in Las Vegas. And I encourage all media people to contact Don Campbell, Donald J. Campbell of Campbell and William Firm, because Mr. Campbell was the assistant U.S. attorney who I worked directly with, who presided over the grand jury that I testified on on May the 5th of 1982, which I believe led to Collada flipping because about a week later, that's exactly what he did. And I was flown out there, and you'll read in my book, the chapter presidential treatment. You'll read all about my testifying before this grand jury. But Don Campbell, just like Gene Smith, they kept their mouth shut. And because a lot of them know all about and they know the truth. And Campbell does. He knows what I did for them. And he knows what they did to me. I really want to get a sit down with him or a response from him because he knows who I am and what I did. So just wanted to throw that out. All right. All right. That is a very important thing regarding my book. Yeah, well, there's media people from Las Vegas that listen to this podcast. I just talked to one of them the other day, so they will be alerted from this. David, I really appreciate you being on the show. And people, get that book, give him a review, give him a good five-star review. That helps him sell books. And, you know, folks, the more books like this we sell, the more other people get to read them and get interested in them because it amps it up in Amazon algorithms. And so more people will see it and buy it and he'll make some money and you'll get more people interested and you have more of this history will come out. So it's help him out, help us all out by uh, giving us reviews and sharing your stuff on Facebook. You know, if you're on the uh, Las Vegas Mob History Facebook page or Gangland Wire podcast page, why? You'll see us doing stuff and reposting things that David's posted and David posts things and help him get the message out. It helps us all. Thanks a lot, David. Thank you, Gary. All right. Have a great day. You too. Bye. 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 Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast Reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content. So if you want more 
Mob information that you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or two ninety nine if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation. And then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about gangland wire. You guys all know. I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening, and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey. Casey.